Deep Space Nine is the Star Trek with the greatest focus on political concepts like colonialism, feminism, queerness, and post-scarcity economics. Join hosts and guests who aren't just Trekkies, but activists, academics, artists, therapists, and more as we do a deep dive into the text and subtext where few Star Trek podcasts have gone before. We'll be discussing Deep Space Nine's themes and characters, not doing recaps. As a result, this show is full of spoilers. If you haven't seen the entire series and want to, we suggest mm -hmm. finishing your watch and then coming back to the archives where all of the episodes will be waiting for you. Welcome to Deep Space Dive, a Deep Space Nine podcast from Graphic Policy Radio. We are your hosts. I'm Ilana Levin, also the host of Graphic Policy Radio. And I've worked at the intersection of comics, nerd culture, and social change for over a decade. My biggest Trek cred is that I gave a speech on fan activism at a rally organized by Lita, a.k.a. Chase Masterson. And I'm Sarah Daniel Rasher. When I'm not getting paid to use math to save the world, I write about film and figure skating. I was the founding captain of my high school Star Trek club, and I once got Nicole DeBoer to kiss me at a convention. Hmm. Jadzia Dax represents a lot of things to a lot of people. She's a woman of science. She's a member of a structurally gender-fluid species, the Trill. She's a batleth-swinging badass. She has one of the best coming out as trans scenes in a show, and she's often the emotional glue that holds the crew together, and her spots canonically go all the way down. To talk about her, joining us today is a writer who lives up to her name, Jadzia Axelrod. Hello, it's so nice to be here. Yay, welcome back. I don't know if I have any Star Trek cred. Uh, I was a contributor to the Diaz Zine comic anthology that was a lot of fun, in which I did do, I wrote and drew a Jadzia Dax story where she has a heart-to-heart -heart with my second favorite character in DS9, the Klingon chef. Uh, oh, yay! As it goes. Oh my god, I love Another it. character who deserves his own episode of this oh podcast. Oh my gosh, please yes. bring me back for that if you do. Yeah. Jadzia Axelrod does have cred in many areas. Yes. She's the author of Galaxy, The Prettiest Star, and Hawk Girl for DC Comics, the DC Book of Pride for DK, as well as the Battle of Blood and Ink for Tor, Frankenstein support group for Misunderstood Monsters for Quirk Books, and the odd issue of Cat Ninja for Epic Originals. She lives in Philadelphia, where she cooks needlessly elaborate meals for her wonderful wife and delightful child. Jadzia has been on my comics podcast, Graphic Policy Radio, to talk about Galaxy, the prettiest star, which is a must for all queer comics fans and those who love them, uh, and also for Bowie fans, obviously. And we also get a bit of a taste of her Hawk Girl series, which is out now at DC Comics. Well, that was the wild thing is like you brought mm -hmm. up Hot Girl and you didn't even know it was coming. I sensed it, though, from our conversation. I was like, we're going to hear a Hot Girl announcement any minute. But I'm respectful <laughs> and I did not try to scoop no anybody. Secrets. That's the thing. I could. I'm like, mm, she's working on a Hot Girl book. And now it exists. <laughs> it, it is a really fun Kate book. Even if you have no idea who Hot Girl is, she is the one with the mace and wings and some Philly Eagles merch. So she's she's that Hot Girl. But um, Indeed. but I'm so we knew we'd have to have you on to talk about your namesake. I mean, yes. obviously, obviously. Uh, yeah, I, I, I do have uh, the same sounding name as Jedzia Dax. It is a human name, though. I do want to make that clear. Like it is it is from Eastern Europe, but it's mm. pronounced Yadya, not Jedzia. I like the Star Trek pronunciation, so I do go by Jedzia. But 
it's not 100% just taking the name from Star Trek. It is a, a name from uh, my heritage. Oh, cool. Well, wouldn't you believe my first question was, I wanted to get your thoughts about the name <laughs> Jazia. Wow. We are so <laughs> And its significance for you. I know. It's really great to be on the show, can I say, because I used to be on podca- podcasts to talk about nerd stuff all the time. And now the only time I'm on podcasts to talk about nerd stuff is my own nerd stuff, which is different than talking yeah. about someone else's nerd stuff. So I'm very excited. Oh, hooray. No, I'm really glad we got to make this happen. I would love to hear more about, about your name. And well, your, it your- means the translations uh, typically means warrior woman, or this is my favorite, she who wants to fight, which is a different thing than a warrior. And I, I like that a lot. Uh, so it's very fitting that Jadzia Dax, who is a woman who is frequently put in a masculine role over the series, has that name. Uh, and it makes, makes a lot of sense. And it made a lot of sense for me when I was choosing a new name. I love it. It's like, it, but it's, it's so interesting that this is like a, you know, a different pronunciation of, a, of a, a name from another language that actually also makes sense with the character. Like I just, it didn't even occur to me to think about that question. Yeah, it's, uh, it's wild. It's absolutely wild. Um, when I first considered it as a name, I um, made a joke and because I wanted to keep my original initial, which was J, and mm. none of the J names that I came across really lit my fire. And I was like, I'm not really a Julie. That's not me. And I made a joke. It was like, maybe I'll just do Jadzia. And when I did that, like my heart started beating faster. Oh. And then when... I was like, well, maybe, maybe I could be Jadzia. And then I started doing research on the name and found that originally came from where my father's side of the family came from. And I was like, well, all right, this is probably meant to be. And then as I was testing it out, my daughter said it for the first time. Uh, and she said, Jadzia, in this Aww. tiny little baby voice. And I was like, nope, nope, we're done. The search is <laughs> over. I can't change it now. Oh, that was too that's good. So sweet. That's so sweet. I love that. That is so beautiful. I, I like I pe- your people's names should make their heart beat faster. That should be true for anyone, regardless of what phase in life you are, I think. Yeah. Agreed. So tell us, what is your history with Deep Space Nine as a TV show? Um, well, it's my favorite Shrek, number one, like bar none. Um, like I love Do- Lower Decks now, but Lower Decks is yeah. still second place. Mm. And also, lo- um, Deep Space Nine walked so that Lower Decks can run. Like it, it, <laughs> it clearly the DNA of one is in the show of the other. Like that's obvious. But it's all it's been my favorite trick. I couldn't watch it when it was originally on because we mm. couldn't didn't have the television channel <laughs> that it was on. So all my friends in middle school were watching it and excited about it. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, but it sounds fun. I could watch Next Generation because it was on a completely another channel. Huh. Um, but I couldn't watch Deep Space Nine. So it wasn't until um all my friends had moved on <laughs> that I had discovered Deep Space Nine for myself and just fell in love and still continue to this day. I rewatching episodes for this podcast, like I hadn't 
rewatched them in a while. And then the moment I hit play and there was Quark's weird little face on the screen, I was like, oh, yeah, this is great. So it's like my comfort show now, Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. weird because it's not a comforting show. It's about very difficult questions that don't have answers. That's its whole thing. But it is comforting to see those characters grapple with those situations. Mm -hmm. I think, think yeah, it's become a comfort show, I think, for a lot of people. And I think that the pandemic kind of accelerated that. It was so relatable during the pandemic because we did start rewatching it during the pandemic. And there would just be scenes where... Uh, Cisco is just so exhausted to have to get onto another Zoom call as like, yes. no, I get, I get this. I feel it. Well, no, I'm, yeah, I mean, I think our, our postulate, we began the podcast during the ongoing pandemic and it was partially like, we realized how good it felt to watch people with power dealing with hard problems who, even if they couldn't solve things, were at least really trying hard and were serious about their work and making the best decisions they could. Despite their house falling apart. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like these people are taking their job seriously, unlike the people in charge right now, and that feels nice. Yeah. So um, I'm not surprised that that that's sort of the official show, I think, working theory on why why it speaks to folks right now so much. But um, but yeah, it, it is it is funny because a lot of what people think of in terms of comfort viewing is a lot more cuddly than this. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the least cuddly Trek shows, and I think that's part of the charm. Um, cause they're not a family, right? Like the whole thing is they are a workplace and like half of them don't like the other, like no one <laughs> likes Quark, but they also couldn't imagine not having Quark there. And it's, it doesn't feel the same way other Trek shows feel cause they're not traveling anywhere. They're not a tight knit unit so much as they are a collective of people with mostly similar goals. And, um, I just love it. I just love it because it allows for that sort of complexity of narrative because there, there's not um, a planet of the week, because there's not an overarching mission of discovery and exploration, because they are stuck there and they have to deal mm-hmm. with consequences, especially in the latter seasons when they were allowed to kind of have a proto Battlestar Galactica feeling to them. Um like you can really see how Battlestar Galactica was like, this is the story I wanted to tell <laughs> from Ronald D. Moore. Yeah. They wouldn't let me at Deep Space Nine. Um, but that idea of like after the Enterprise leaves a planet, what happens then is kind of Deep Space Nine's whole ethos. And that is fascinating to me just in general, but especially as a writer to be like, mm-hmm. yeah, what does happen after the Enterprise leaves? And like, the revolution has been successfully happened, but like what happens to the revolutionaries once that goes on? And those questions um, are always going to be interesting. Yeah. And also that idea of like what happens to the parts of the Star Trek universe where humans aren't the default and aren't the center of the narrative. Yes. Yes. As someone who loves aliens and also, um makeup appliances <laughs> two different ideas that nonetheless go hand in hand in television uh yeah. deep space nine is a uh gold mine for that yeah so one of the other things and that i've seen in my sort of very specific circles of the internet that i think probably intersect with yours is that more and more 
um, Jadzia Dax has been embraced as an icon for trans fans and is unusual in that um, she is embraced by um, trans fans regardless of their sort of gender identity and gender journey. So trans masculine, trans feminine, non-binary, agender, you sort of hear from across that spectrum getting very excited about Jadzia as somebody who represents their experience. And why do you think that she has that appeal for such a wide range of trans fans? Uh, I think it's twofold. One is that with the multiple lives behind her that are both male and female, that idea, um, even though she's female bodied during the show, um, she can still embody a sort of transmasculine idea because she brings forth the the male persona. You can really see this in uh, Rejoined where Terry Farrell kind of slides back and forth between masculine and feminine body language as depending on the scene and how it goes, which is yeah. fascinating. But like she can embody those previous hosts in a masculine way. Uh, but also she is a woman now and that is something that's a part of her and something she enjoys and doesn't try to hide or diminish. And so that's something that trans feminine people can enjoy. Uh, the other way I think this works is something I found with Galaxy the Prettiest Star, um, that character Galaxy, uh, Taylor Barsley, she has also been embraced by people who are trans mask or non-binary. And I think part of that is that sci-fi element where you don't have to get bogged down in the transition itself. So it's not about the hormones you take and the way your body changes so much as there was a change. And that change is what people identify with more than the specifics, mm -hmm. which was the goal. So I'm glad that worked. But I think that's something that also fits with Jadzia in that she has a pa she has past lives. They are different than who she is now. Um, there's one of my favorite lines in um, Trials and Tribulations where she wants to go and meet Karloth, right? A Klingon friend of Curzon's. And she says, it's not like he'll recognize me. So it's okay to do this time travel mess with the past thing because he won't recognize me. I look different, um, which is such a trans thing to say. <laughs> and like, that's appealing even no, no matter what your body looks like, I feel. Hmm. I mean, I, for me, it's so funny because you'll totally see people tie themselves into knots about like, oh, are they misgendering? Is, is Cisco misgendering Dax by calling her old man? And I'm like, it feels really validating to me that someone can look at someone who most people would assume was a young woman and also acknowledge this other aspect of her. Actually. Right. Yeah, the old like, man thing old is man weird. <laughs> the old man thing is weird, right? And like we can, I don't know if this, yeah, we'll go ahead and get into this. Let's do it. society as presented in Star Trek, makes no sense and is <laughs> easily contradictory. Because the whole point of it is you're supposed to, if you're a joined trill, right, you have the symbiote inside you, you are supposed to seek out new lives. You are not supposed to associate with people in your own life. You are to find new experiences. 
which is refuted by the entire show where <laughs> Jedzy is hanging out with an old student of hers. But that's fine. It's other times where she meets uh, old members of her past that it's not okay. But it, it's just, that doesn't make any even make any sense because you're going to find the same people over and over again because you're going to be drawn to the same people over and over again. Yeah, I think that Frill Society is one of the least explored alien societies within the Star Trek universe, especially... It is barely for, explored. Yeah, for a species where there have been multiple main you know like main cast characters but you're right i think one of the main reasons is that if they actually tried to explore it as a society it would be like none of this makes any sense none of this is sustainable as an actual culture yeah yeah like it works as a metaphor and it (laughs) works as like one person but the moment you put in a whole society it's like wait a second um but one thing i do like is that what little trill we've seen around is not like Jedzia at all. Like they are mm. not like her. They are more like the prescribed notion of like, you are a new life, you move on, and you don't allow what happened previous to affect who you are. Whereas Jadzia all the time is evoking her previous lives and enjoying that and relishing yeah. that. And so I, I feel like Jadzia is an atypical trill in a lot of ways. And that's certainly borne out in the way other trill treat her. You can either look at it as the entire trill culture are jerks, or they just look down on Jadzia because she's not like the others. Um, or they, those are not mutually exclusive ideas, I guess. Like they could both be jerks and not like the way that she kind of slides so easily between the um, previous lives and also the Dax essence itself they are jealous yeah and um it's part of a pattern i think in deep space nine of a lot of the um alien characters who are the only one or one of only a few on deep space nine that like quark is in a lot of ways a very atypical ferengi Mm -hmm. Uh, garrick is in a lot of ways a very atypical cardassian like we see that Worf is a very atypical klingon Mm -hmm. we see that as sort of a through line among a lot of the alien characters. And so she fits in in that, in the group in that way. Mm. But yeah, she, she's also in the ass end of space, right? Like this is the other thing, like nobody on deep space nine uh, can be anywhere else because if they could, they would be. Hmm. I mean, that's certainly how this show starts like about, about halfway through like Worf is there and Worf can be anywhere. He's a decorated Starfleet officer. But like that opening is, you know, we're in the Wild West and the people are here because they have nowhere else to go and we have to make deal, deal with it. And one of that, and Jadzia stands out because like, why is she here? She does not seem to fit with everybody else. She seems like a bright young woman with a future ahead of her and an extensive past. <laughs> um, but to kind of position her as like an atypical trill who maybe doesn't feel at home in Trill society. Um, And that could be something about Dax because the previous lives were travelers and roamers and people who interacted without the Trill society for the most part. Like Curzon was a big diplomat. I know the gymnast whose name I'm forgetting was frequently involved in Starfleet stuff, despite not being a Starfleet person. Really? 
Yeah. Um, just by happenstance. It was one of those yeah. things. Spent a lot of time on Earth, apparently. Uh-huh. And so, like, there's this element of Dax in general just not being someone who likes the trills. <laughs> Good call. And then that's, I think, compounded with Jadzia, who, again, is is embracing of all her past lives and at the same time wants to do entirely new things than they did but yet surround herself with her past. I was really struck during this rewatch at how much of a character note it is that Jadzia does not want to go to Trill and feels really anxious and like traumatized by what she went through on the home world in right. both as an initiate and just in general. And like, I kind of love that, like, you know, that as a, as a beat for her, if you want to. Yeah. 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 It's, and it's really interesting, too, because, like, when Curzon rejects her initially, he says it's because she would get too lost in the previous lives. Like, there's not enough of herself to handle a Trill symbiont. Like, she needs to have more of an identity beyond being just someone who has a Trill inside of her. And so when we see her now as someone who is bonded with the Dax symbiote, she still gets overwhelmed by those previous lives and finds herself caught up in the emotions and feelings of the people who came before her um, in a way we don't see other Trill doing. Um, So while that's presented as like a bit of a trumped up reason because also Kirzan was in love with her or something, I don't know, that, that episode is weird. But... If we take that at face value, it does seem to be something that's borne out in who she is and how she lives, which is someone who surfs the reality of all these previous memories. Yeah. Something that you're sort of moving toward that that actually, like we were just talking about right before we started the podcast, which which is the, um, if you go through all of the main characters on Deep Space Nine, Jadzia is the only one who we never see any of her family on screen. Never. Or at most mentioned in passing, or there's like one or two jokes about them. Like almost everybody else, you see at least one parent. O'Brien, you don't, but you hear a lot about his family and his past. Like, how does Jadzia's lack of connection to her family feed into all this? Yeah, it's a good question and I'm not even sure how to answer because we don't really see who Jadzia, surname never revealed, exists. We see Jadzia Dax, but we don't really see pre-Jadzia in the same way that we see Odo before Deep Space Nine. We see Cisco before Deep Space Nine. We see Kira before Deep Space Nine. We meet uh, Julian's family, even if we don't see him before that. And so there is this, a delving into who these characters are before episode one starts. And while Jadzia talks about her past lives, she does not talk about her past life before she was a joined Trill. And that's, I I feel like that's unexplored territory and that will never be explored now. Yeah. You get some flashes when, um, there is discussion of her training and her sort of apprenticeship to Curzon. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's all sort of like, well, you were shy. You were sort of. Yeah. You do get a feeling that she doesn't like who she was before joining. Yeah. Yeah. And whether that's something that comes from being joined with Dax 
or it's something that's like, yeah, I was a try-hard kid who was shy and never really knew what to do with myself. We've all been there. Who hasn't looked at their school-age time and been like, whew, boy, uh, you need to chill out. So there's something there, right? Like looking at your younger self, but also there does seem to be a very conscious effort to separate herself from everything that was Jadzia, uh, surname, surname never specified, with the right. exception of her love of science, which is a new thing that the other lives didn't have. Yeah. There's a sense that like her decision to become joined had a lot to do with her desire to escape her past and to escape the person she used to be that she didn't want to continue being. Yeah, that's, it, it's annoying that that's implied and never outright stated. Right. You know, yeah. like that could have been a really cool monologue to give Terry and they never did. Yeah. Right. It also just feels very much like that is like a place where she, where she has test trauma. Um, like from, and that's something that I think a lot of folks our age and younger relate to um, is having been through an insane quantity of testing. Yeah. That, like is just so intrusive and invasive and it's it's interesting because it works both on the like person who is either gifted or learning disabled or perhaps learning disabled and gifted and been through mm -hmm. the school system and has had to take a lot of tests in order to get their um iep their individualized education plan approved so that they, they can have the accommodations they need or the classes they'd like to access but also feels very much like trying to get hormones from your doctors it kind of is like on multiple levels of like these gatekeepers who ask, yes. who insist on asking her questions and keeping things from her. She also in, um, and I'd forgotten about this, but we, uh, did we all rewatch Equilibrium? But um, that I, I, I actually <laughs> expresses some medical trauma there too, that like she mm -hmm. doesn't want to go to the doctor. She doesn't want to be medically evaluated that she seems to have some association with, negative experiences in the past there too um and julian very very sweetly talks her down from that um but um i think that that's something that a lot that a lot of um, trans folks have in common with her oh 100 well. yeah i i was really powerful um watching cisco in that episode stand up to the doctors demanding they give dax the right to self-determination on mm -hmm. how she should be treated um, I mean, it just really seemed like a parallel to me for letting trans people make their own dis medical decisions because this doctor was totally dis making the doctor on for folks who haven't recently watched the episode um, <laughs> when when Dax goes back to the Trill homeworld because like her equilibrium, whatever her levels were messed up and it's all tied into that secret life that was hidden from her, you know, backstory. Mm -hmm. The um the, 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 one of the Trill doctors is basically saying like, well, if we let her know, you know, it could be dangerous to her. She might not recover. And Cisco is just like, you don't get to fucking decide for her. She deserves, we why don't you bring her out of coma and ask her what she wants. And like this Trill doctor who cannot even occur to them to like respect her autonomy or ask her for what she wants feels to me very typical of what Trill society must have been like. Yeah. Um, yeah, it seems a very regulated society, right? Like it seems, especially if you are involved with the symbionts and want to be a joined person, like it's a very almost fascist-esque society where it's like you have to follow these rules 
in order to do it. Um, and it's, I think it's an equilibrium. I've watched so many episodes. They're blending together now. But I think it's an equilibrium where it's revealed that like a lot more people can be bonded mm -hmm. to a trill yes. than they yes. let on. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like not only is this thing regulated and, in, and very difficult, but it's like needlessly so. I, I'm just so struck at how apt it seems. We talk about this is that it also ties into... Um, both the pattern throughout the show of people um, having sort of mental health crisis moments and then finding ways to recover from them. Some of them mm. organic and some of them like coming and going as the plot requires O'Brien. But, um, <laughs> but that we tend not, we tend to talk about, you know, Garrick's trauma and claustrophobia and panic attacks. And then O'Brien's recovery from the imprisonment trauma and Nog recovering from the sort of his sort of combat trauma and the trauma of losing his leg. And I feel like Dax's mental health journey with the uncovering of Duran and the incorporation of Duran, where during equilibrium, she is basically having dissociative episodes. Like yeah. the, like it really fits in to this pattern of like so many people on Deep Space Nine are dealing with serious mental health trauma. Yeah. Uh, well, you don't go to Deep Space Nine if you're mentally healthy. Right. <laughs> like a mentally healthy person does not look at a Bajoran outpost on a broken Cardassian space station and is like, that's where I need to go. Yeah. So when we were asking like, well, what is this bright young woman with this great future doing there? It's like, well, she's a mess. Yeah. Is the, it might be the answer. Like she's somebody who... She's competent enough yeah. to be a lieutenant in Starfleet. Yeah. that's And that's not easy. But at the same time, is like actively separating herself from any sort of personal bonds. Like, it's funny that the friends that she has are Curzons, right? Like, mm -hmm. that's her friends. We don't see friends from Jadzia's past. We see Cisco we see Martok and Korath and Kang and all those guys who are Curzon's friends. Mm -hmm. We don't see Jedzia's friends. Yeah, she is. Yeah. She, she cut off whatever social world she had before joining. She cut that off hard. Which also feels very trans, right? It's like, these are the friends I've made before I transitioned. They're still my friends. I haven't been this person long enough to make friends who just know me as me yet. And I can see mm. how that's very appealing. But yeah. also saying like this group of friends, um, I can make the transition with. Mm-hmm. And then this group of friends and family, like the only way to transition is to remove them from my life. Right. Yeah. It's like, you guys are cool. My family, however, will get a letter sometimes. <laughs> Why don't we talk about that scene with her and her Klingon blood oath brothers? Um, oh my gosh. So powerful that it's become a meme really at this point. Blood oath is, blood oath is that good, everyone. Blood oath it, good. I was surprised. I was surprised because I watched it going in with like even like high expectations because I'd watched Rejoined right before it, which is great. 
Um, yes. and, and an atypical Star Trek episode in a lot of ways. And then watching um, Blood Oath, I was like, this is also great. <laughs> and it's and it shouldn't be, honestly. I mean, the 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 conceit is so hoary. It's like, let's <laughs> get the gang back together for one last ride, right? And it's like bringing back these original series actors to play their characters again, but they're now 100 years older. It's so silly. And yet, because all of these guys are these incredibly talented workhorse character actors like it's so grounded and you feel all the emotions and i love klingons in general because everything is operatic right it's never just oh it's a nice day today it's always like the day has grown upon us and should we be damned or should we be blessed we shall move forward like it's all everything is too huge with klingons and i love that i love Um, them yeah, and so like it really, it feels, it elevates the scenario, which could just as easily be any other television show in any medium or format. But because it is Star Trek, we get this idea of how much do you owe your past self in a very visceral way. If Curzon made this blood oath, does, is Jadzia responsible? And everyone says no. And Jadzia says, yes, actually I am responsible. Um, which again, goes back to that whole previous life bleed that Jadzia is such a part of her and is so comfortable with in a way that we don't see other Trill being. So why do you think she feels that obligation? Because it's hard for her to separate herself from her past lives. Like she talks about not Curzon's godson, but her godson. Yeah. Uh, in the same way that she talks uh, about Lenora and Rejoined as her wife. Like these, this is, the past lives are visceral to Jadzia in a way they aren't even to Ezri, who has trouble mm-hmm. like separating them, but they're not uh, visceral to her. Like it's not a Dax thing to have this sort of, wandering bleed of past lives that's a jadzia thing that she embraces and enjoys and i think that's fascinating but like she feels more comfortable with that with the people of a past life with the setting of a past life than she does in her own life which we again never see and even as she's establishing herself as you know this really this war hero and as this person who really does have a unique legacy and unique relationships that are all her own that yeah that part i think that almost part of her construction of her personality as a joined person is like not prioritizing her current self as separate from her prior selves yes but just as this is who I am now, but all of these other people are also who I am. She is truly a gestalt entity in a way that the other Trills, even her past life and then future life with Ezri are not. She has to explain Trill identity to people who knew Curzon. So clearly Curzon is not someone who talked about past lives frequently to these Mm. men whom are, he is so close that one of them is made him uh, the godfather of his child, right? These are tight emotional bonds that he had with these men. And he clearly never talked about a past life that he had 
because when Jadzia says, hi, I'm Curzon, they do not believe her. Like, this seems like the most ridiculous thing. And part of that is because every episode is someone's first, right? So you yes. have to explain Jadzia's deal in the course of the story so people understand. But the consequence of that is very interesting. And it means that Curzon did not talk about his past lives to these men whom he shared everything with. I have in a fact, about- I, I'm, I'm not sure Blood Oath was the first episode of Deep Space Nine I, I ever saw, but it was like no more than the second or third one I ever saw. Like, it might be the first hmm. episode of Deep Space Nine I ever saw. Oh, that's a good way to get started. Yeah. But I have a theory for why in canon, this is true though, with why Curzon would not have talked about this with the Klingons, is I think because because. Trill society had historically been sexist. His assumption about the functioning of Klingon society would be such that the Klingons would not take him seriously as a man if they knew he had not always been a man. And then Dax is the person who actually understanding the Klingon culture fully, but also through the lens of having like being, you know, present as a woman in this moment is like, I think they can handle this, actually. Like, I think we should give them a chance to understand the thing, actually. I mean, I think um, that tracks, but also there's been male uh, previous lives to Curzon, right? One of which was the shuttle pilot. And so, like, oh, yeah. in space, like, that must have come up, right? It's like, yeah, I know how to fly this shuttle because my previous <laughs> life was a, cu- was a shuttle pilot who was a dude. We're all dudes here. just guying around do style um so i think i think that certainly works but also um you know it's just weird the only way that makes sense that he never spoke about it at all is because that's just not what trills do and like again jadzia is an atypical trill in that she flaunts her past lives she luxuriates in them she makes sure you know them and you know them by name because they are important to her. And in a way, it almost feels like overcompensating, right? Like she's like, I am more than me. I am also these other six people. Mm -hmm. You don't have to like judge me on on face value because I am also six people you can't see. Trust me. (laughs) I love that for her. It's one of the things, something that has come up and I, I apologize to whoever I was discussing this with in case they're listening. Cause I, I, cause I'm pretty sure it wasn't my wife, but it was like somebody else, but I can't remember who um, is that we tend to presuppose because Klingon culture is intermittently very sexist and has a sense of like overall old fashionedness to it. We tend to presuppose that it's also a homophobic and transphobic culture and the sort of like, well, what if it's not like, what mm-hmm. if it's that's, not been one of their problems for centuries like what if they worked that out and they think you know you know your child says he's a boy and has been a boy all along you just give him the hormones and let him pick his new name and things just motor right along and that that's just something that's part of klingon culture that's just sort of accepted um my wife and i have a headcanon that um klingons are very because they're so personally, it's all about the personal journey, right? Your progress, your journey forward, what you're supposed to be going toward, that they are very trans positive. 
and that it is no big deal. And it's like, I don't know, dad, I just feel more like throwing furniture than reading poetry. And it's like, well, then you're my daughter and I love you. Here's a chair, throw it at whoever you love. And like (laughs) that sort of thing would be like, if you can prove yourself as a man or a woman, then that's all that matters. It doesn't really matter your origins, right? Like there's not a caste system in Klingon. I mean, there is, but you know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That it's like this, it's very much like the personal journey. And like, if you can rise above, if you can kill your commander and take his place, if you can do that, then you deserve it. Like you've earned that by your own personal determination. So yeah, I 100% believe that not only do Klingons accept trans people, but they also accept queer people. And there are scenarios where two men just read poetry to each other Mm -hmm. and two women throw furniture. I mean, both those sound hot, honestly. (laughs) And that sort of tracks with her romance with Worf, which Mm -hmm. um, generally the consensus is that Jadzia and Worf are one of the few canon couples that are actually hot and make sense. Um, That like Worf has all kinds of anxieties about being with Jadzia and he, you know, his jealousy and his biphobia come into play. But like the Jewish side of him and, you know, he's working on it. He is working on it. Yeah. But one of the things that never seems to phase him is the fact that she used to be a man. Yeah. No problem with that. No problem. Do we have any other things we want to point to from the Blood Oath, from Blood Oath episode? Or it's just so great to see a show with older actors, like mm. people who really have studied their craft, and like then they come on the show and they just make Shakespeare out of the silliest of billies. <laughs> I love that. So good. I yeah. love that. It's it's something that Deep Space Nine does a lot. They're frequently pulling from the well of these stage actors who are so talented and they have them come on for uh, in the case of Martok, several episodes, but mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. most part, like one or two episodes and they just really ground some of the most ridiculous ideas. And it's just a delight. And you don't see that as much, especially in the recent Trek stuff, which no. I think is really a shame. Agreed. I also think one of the reasons why the gif of Core. Core, sorry. Of course, saying, ah, Jadzia, my old friend, is so uh, beloved by people is that there's something powerful about being this obviously craggly old man being the person who can just throw up his arms and embrace his friend and say, okay, these are your pronouns, that's your name, and I'm taking you at your word. And that's that. Yeah. And it, again, speaks to a element of trans culture within the Klingon universe that he doesn't miss a beat. And it's like, oh, you're Jed Zia now. Yeah, you're still my old friend. I love them. And I think it is actually sort of an, an, like, like the experience, the negative experiences that people have with like older relatives or older coworkers, like they, the majority of them are negative to neutral. So that tends to be like the assumption, but the number of trans people who, if asked, can talk about that one person who's much older than them Mm -hmm. who had a really wonderful reaction and never got their pronouns wrong again. Like a lot of us could come up with that one person and 
can use it really as a way to say, hey, um, it's not that like age makes it impossible for you to embrace change in others. It's just all of us have been burned so badly that we like erase the positive examples and the people who have been really great advocates. I'm even, um, I'm thinking about my parents have some friends that I didn't really get to know until after our wedding and they came to our wedding and like, they'd never known me or Amy as anybody else except like how we look and how we present our- ourselves after transition. And they just like, know us and these are people in like their 60s and 70s and pretty much never mess it up and pretty much are just like excited to know us and learn about us as we are and like i feel like so many of those older people are out there and don't get the acknowledgement that would i think help other people of their generation be more understanding and be more embracing of of change and difference yeah i think it's a it's a it's a false reason, right? Like it's what people cling to because they don't want to take the responsibility for their own actions. And it's just like, oh, that's just how I was raised. That's just the time. When it's clearly not true because there are people of older age who have no problems with that. Um, and it's it's definitely a personal difficulty that they like to make a generational one. And it's so great to have this very clearly an older man roll with the punches here and be like, yeah, okay. I got it. Moving on. Oh, do we want to talk about her relationship with Worf some? Um, Because yeah, we definitely had, you know, like I definitely agree that like Worf and Jadzia make sense as a couple and they actually have chemistry and they actually seem hot. Um, One of our listener. (laughs) <laughs> this is also true. Listener, uh, comic book writer themselves, uh, B. Khan, asked, how many seconds did it take Dax to realize she was extremely into Worf? And it's interesting because I watched an early interaction with them. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure I know the answer to that. What do you think, Dax? Dax, wow. What do you think, Jensia? <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, I love that 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 happened. I just wanted to let it sit there for a moment. Um, I think, I don't think she... I don't think she was attracted to him until he let some of his walls down. I Mm. think he had a lot of walls up and that made him like a great target for ridicule from her. Like there's a lot of teasing that goes on early on. And I don't think that teasing has a flirtatious aspect until he starts to loosen up a bit, which is a nice little character move that he has to like open up before she's attracted to him. Hmm. And, and I like that. And that's, that's my, my theory on it. And I, I don't know when exactly the moment is that things start to change. Um, I want to say it's the second episode of Force Appearance because it's a two-parter and it's near the end that he starts to loosen up a bit. And, and then their relationship starts to change from then on. I think, I haven't watched the episode in a long time. It is strange then that they have the Risa episode and like they're clearly in a relationship in flirtation mode and then he regresses (laughs) and then she gets mad at him. Um, But I think that they, there, she is someone who's very open, which is very cool. And I like that about her and that about what she's thinking and what she's feeling. And that's never something that's being hidden with the exception of her life as Jed Zia, surname never specified. (laughs) But like, and so then, 
her job then is to open up Worf, who is by nature and incredibly understandably given his history, he is very closed off. Like he has had to be for his entire life in order to kind of just get through childhood and then Starfleet. Like he's had to be a very collected and calm and guarded person. And then what's weird, it's weird watching these episodes again and you see people be casually racist to Worf. It's like, how is this allowed? In the 21st century, no one's calling this out? Why is it okay to be racist to Klingons? I don't understand. Um, not the twenty, the twenty fourth century. If you if you look at that as text, right, and it's like, oh, Worf has probably had a lot of uh, microaggressions thrown his way his entire life, being yeah. a Klingon in human society, and their pairing also is very similar in the same way that Jadzia can go back to Trill, but she knows she's not welcome there. Um, Worf can go back to the Klingon homeworld or go back to the Rashinkos. Did we ever, was it ever established where their Shinkos live? They feel very Jersey, but I don't think that's true. Um, I don't know. I don't know if we talked, we, you know, we had the one that, that, that very robust wharf episode with fellow Jew of color, Ruff Shimanoff. And I don't know if we talked about where the Roshenkos live, but I can see that. I think it's, is it so it's, this is me trying to like pull up next generation lore, which is much rustier than Deep Space Nine lore. Um, It's they, he was raised on a colony. Okay, that's right. That's right. But they now live on Earth, and it's somewhere in Eastern Europe. Okay. It is not real well pinned down. Um, of because of their surname, I just assume that it's Ukraine. Right. But, like, it could be anywhere okay. in that part of the world. Right. Just him having to be closed off, and how he, he can go back to his where his parents live. He can go back to the Klingon homeworld, but he's not going to fit in there. Um, and either way, uh, he spent too much time not around Klingons. So he can't yeah. really exist in either world. And I, I can see them bonding over that. Even if they don't explicitly say it, there's something about um, these two who are are not necessarily outcasts, but definitely outsiders in their own cultures. What's interesting is, you know, once you see them as a couple, it's like, well, of course, Dax wants to be with a Klingon. Dax loves Klingons. Like, how could anything else be true? You know, like what what I I I couldn't imagine Dax being with a non-Klingon in a way. Because that's a culture that she has such a passion towards. Yeah. Um, and it's also something, and I know that we don't want to get too deep into the whole one-sided obsessions that both julian and quark have for her like those are such a problem and often the result of bad writing yes that like i don't think we want to get too deeply into those but i think that the way we can look at it is like julian's repressed homosexuality of course (laughs) i mean i i'd go more for first of all bi and second of all um with the amount of fun he's having with certain cardassians it's not real repressed um but uh right but in the beginning it's very much repressed oh yeah i mean but you know garrick jumps in there pretty sure like Um, solves all his problems right i think we can agree on that 
But I was going to say that like there that I'm sure that looking the way Jadzia looks and presumably has looked for a long time. And this does seem to be something that Terry Farrell taps into in her portrayal of the character and in the way she responds to these two men very aggressively declaring their interest in her um, is that like when you when you have an entire lifetime of mostly men approaching you that way that like having somebody who clearly has interest in you and who clearly you connect with and um feel interest in who you can tell is absolutely never gonna behave that way mm-hmm. and is absolutely never going to act like he's entitled to your attention because he's interested in you i can see that being a big part of Worf's appeal for her that like she knows he's feeling it. They get along. She can see a future there. The attraction is there, but she knows he's not going to make a big first move. He's not going to push it past where she's comfortable. He's always going to acknowledge her agency in the relationship and other things that are never stated, but are very firm in my own headcanon are he learned all this from dating Deanna Troy. Like, you know, you date a therapist. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love I it. Mean, he's also a little older than like mm. Quark is who knows how old he is, but he is not a mature person. Right. And Julian yeah. is, you know, an adorable twink. So like he has a maturity that they don't have. And that has to be very attractive to someone like Dax who carries around a maturity that belies her appearance. You know, I, I think this might be a good em- entry point to talking about Terry Farrell's performance as an actor in the series. Um, this was her first real, you know, acting, significant acting role in that way. Although actually, wait, when did the um, horror movie come out? When did uh, the Hellraiser come out? Right? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know anything about the Hellraisers, but I do okay. know she played the cat in the American pilot of Red Dwarf. That was oh, really awful. Funny. Yeah, she had some roles before this, but I think that she talks about it as like her first sort of big starring role. Yeah. Yeah, which, which is, is just funny t- to me. Because, so yeah, Hellraiser 3 was one year before. Because to me, Hellraiser 3 is still like a pretty big deal. But that's because I'm a Hellraiser fan. Needless to say, this was, a, this was a big career, you know, step for her. I think you really see her grow as a performer insanely quickly through the series. When, when I was watching, and she's someone who has to embody, yeah, like a whole different range of gender and ages and bearings and presentations throughout the whole series. And I, as I was rewatching the very end of Rejoined, there's this, the moment where she sees her ex get on the shuttle transport. You can see that she is about to absolutely fall into tears. And then she realizes that that will not help her. And she's going to put the mask back on and like mm-hmm. try to brush it off. And she communicates all of this with a single, hardly audible sigh and movement of her neck. And it's just astonishing. Well, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that her main scene partner for Deep Space Nine is Avery Brooks, who is a yeah. masterclass in acting in general, and also directed her in Rejoined, which is why the performances are so mm-hmm. good in that show. Um, and like, how can you not like learn from watching that man do his thing? There's a great his. He's got one scene in. 
Blood Oath. So we are going to talk about Blood Oath once again. Uh, <laughs> you asked, and now I'm coming back. Um, where he run, he comes into Jedzia's room to tell her that she can't have leave to go on this wild goose chase. And he comes in, and he's out of breath. The implication being that he ran all the way from Ops down to Jedzia's um, quarters to tell her not to go. And like to have that sort of being in the moment, that present of mind of not just where I am when the scene starts, but where I am before the scene has begun is mm-hmm. so great. So like he is there and to be a young actor and to see him work, you had to pick up all the stuff that he is putting down, right? Like there's no way. And so like, and clearly a quick study because she's amazing. Again, to go back to rejoin an amazing performance there. Like, I love the way that she shifts between masculine and feminine body language throughout that episode, depending on what the scene requires of her character. Uh, And it's something that she does all through the show, right? But it's very evident in Rejoined in a really nice way. Yeah. Um, it's. I think it's notable in terms of her acting that she began as a model, and a lot of models cannot make a successful transition to acting, but the ones who do, one of the things they seem to draw on very well is using your physicality to tell a story, because so much of modeling, you don't have lines at your disposal. Everything that you're doing is with your body. So I think, yeah, all of these examples that you're mentioning really feed into that idea that as she was learning to think of herself as an actress rather than as a model, that you see her drawing on the idea of how much can I convey with my body? What am I using my body to say here on top of how am I delivering the lines? And you're right, there's so many examples of her giving a lot physically and often filling in between what's on the page for her. Another kind of contrasting example I'm thinking of is in Trials and Tribulations, just like how giddy she is the entire episode and to convey in a way that doesn't make her seem foolish, Mm -hmm. just makes her seem excited and happy and to maintain that register um throughout and to put she swings her hips more in that old uniform like when she walks she does like exaggerated hip sway which she does not do in the ds9 jumpsuit no um so that's very fun that that yeah. actually brings me to a question I, I wasn't sure if I was going to do, but I'm like, no, we actually have to talk about this. So when you're looking for GIFs of DAX in mm-hmm. the internet, the, 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 the GIF keyboard will immediately first pull her stuff from um, Trouble with Tribbles. And then after that, it'll all then be stuff from her in the holodeck. Like people are pulling images of her where she is not in, in anything but her Star Trek uniform and which is it's weird, like she looks great in that uniform well i think that there's a subset of the, the fa- i mean like look i think she's hot but yeah. i think that there's a subset of fans who because they're pea-brained can they only want to see her sexualized in a very traditional right. way and they jump at any opportunity to try to 
view her in a way that like those are all costumes for Dax. That's Dax yeah. doing a play. That's not Dax being Dax. And it's weird too because that her normal DS9 jumpsuit is tailored within an inch of her life. Like <laughs> especially in the later seasons um with the gray shoulders, like that thing mm-hmm. she could not take a breath, like a deep breath and not have a, spl- a seam split. Mm-hmm. Um so it is weird to me that like a character who is always presented as beautiful and sexy and visually pleasing. Like that's part of who she yeah. is. Yeah. Um, to the obnoxious amount of characters commenting on it. That's text, but it's like there. And so to, it is weird to me that like, yeah, I love the um, original series miniskirt as much as anybody, but like, she looks great no matter what she's wearing. Mm-hmm. And in part yeah. because that was a conscious effort on the costumers to make her look great. <laughs> she also has really good outfits in the um, the Bell Riots episode. So Yes. Oh my Whatever God. Whatever she's wearing Bell right Riot. now yeah. is really good. <laughs> she's got that like that suit with like the black yeah. tights and like the feathers. It's like uh, amazing. I love her Risa swimsuit too. The racist oh, yeah, I was going to bring up the racist one too. I was also going to say that the number of people who are actively mad that we are like a year away from the bell riots and none of us are dressing like that. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Also, um, the was- computers looked way cooler in the bell riots than we have them now. <laughs> so I expect everyone working at Apple Watch to step it up. Um, speaking of um, Risa and such, uh, Sarah, do you want to ask that question that I thought was really good? Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that I find really interesting that I hope, Judge, you can expand on is the idea of Dax is very consistently the voice of like sex positivity and seeing beauty and attractiveness in all different kinds of body types and all different kinds of appearances. Mm-hmm. And often to the point of like, Kira will say something about somebody's appearance and Dax will be like, do you hear yourself right now? <laughs> but like, what does it mean and how does it fit into her character that she is this very consistent voice of sex positivity? Um, well, I think that's definitely true, but I would expand them on that and that she is the voice of all positivity. Like that's hmm. her role in this series is to not necessarily look on the bright side because she's not a Pollyanna, but to take things as they are right and like when someone is presented as weird or unusual or a, a cultural ele- cultural element is presented as weird and unusual she is the one who's like okay but let's look at it let's examine the beauty here the reasoning behind mm. it and i think that's something that she does repeatedly i think it's most clear when someone is like i don't know about that and she's like oh i do absolutely um and that's the beauty uh of the pansexual trill culture that we're deciding is exists (laughs) or maybe it's, that's just the Jadzia element because we've also established that they're tight ass fascists. So um, the trills make no sense. I think we already said that. And I'm going to say it again. She is Mm -hmm. always that person who's like, let's look at this from another point of view. Um, And that I, from a storytelling point that makes sense because she has so many points of view. Right. It makes her a very interesting character in that here is someone who is literally a statuesque model, right? Like that's that's who the actress portraying her is. And yet she is the one who's like, 
I am not as concerned about traditional standards of beauty as you are. And I do find yeah. that interesting. Yeah. I love yeah. that with them. Well, let's talk about her friendship with Kira. Um, they, I just love watching them interact together. Sarah and I were talking before you came on about like the nature of the Kira Dax ship mm-hmm. or not. So, you know, a, 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 a fair amount of folks in the queer community ship them. Yes. But Sarah and I have thoughts, but no, I want your thoughts before, before we prejudice this. What are your thoughts about the Dax and Kira friendship and as well as the ship potential with them? I think they have a friendship that really works because Kira has had much more life experience than her years would suggest. Mm. Right. And Dax similarly looks like a young woman, but has a lot of life experience that people don't assume. And so the fact that they would be friends beyond just being the only two women in ops makes a lot of sense, right? Like these Mm -hmm. are women who have been through a lot and a lot of people don't expect that because they are relatively young, um, extremely young. I think in Dax's case, he was in her twenties when the show started. Mm -hmm. I don't remember how old Nana Visitor is, but she's always looked kind of ageless. So who knows? This is true. So I can see them like bonding in that way. Right. And like having a similar perspective even though they were not friendly in the beginning because no one was friendly in the beginning as far as the relationship i i get it it's not something i see because it feels like kira never really owns up to her own desires um whether she is i feel like kira reads extremely queer right like we can agree on that yeah Mm -hmm. um but it's also like a very closeted queerness, right? And so I see Jedzia as like the bisexual friend who's like, come on, come on, let it out. I know you're going to come out eventually, but I can't force you. I can't say that you're queer because that would be um, violating your own journey and you need to come to it on your own. But I'm here for you and I'm going to keep nudging you in the right direction. And Kira clearly is attracted to Dax because again, who wouldn't be? And then, <laughs> but is not acknowledging it. And it's like, yeah, uh, Dax is just my good friend and Dax. Like we're really good friends. And I just love being around her and looking at her. That's not weird. No. Yeah. It's what the thing that we were sort of talking about is that like, because people do sort of um, see the queer potential in that friendship and it's one of those where it's like for me it's like i see the potential i uh, i totally buy it but it's not something that i'm particularly focused on and the difference that i always want to make clear is that like when we're talking about garrick and bashir we're talking about a relationship that like the actors involved like built it into their conceptions of those characters some of the writers were in on the gag like that's like it's not yeah, it's you can see stated, but it's, it just, undressing yeah. Yeah. Um, Alexander Siddig with his eyes. Like, that's that's there, right? right. And it's, right. No, it's not there with Kira and Dax. Right. That is fans building in something from what is given to them and doing wonderful transformative work with it. Yes. And we are a pro-transformative work podcast. So, like, that is a, that is a positive to me. But at the same time, it's saying, like, yeah, that potential is there, but I'm kind of where you are, Jadzia, where I see yeah. them as like, what's cool about them is like, 
they are the only two women in the room a lot of the time. And the fact that they're, that they create that bond that's kind of starts there and then just be, becomes a friendship on the basis of really liking each other and having mm-hmm. things in common that are linked to their gender, but aren't about their gender. Like that they get to be friends because they're people who would like each other. Um, is just really cool. And that is written into the into the show very strongly. So like, I do enjoy them on that basis. Yeah, I want to call on your DC Comics awareness and world for a moment here. Um, I remember one of the yes, indeed, <laughs> you've written an encyclopedia, in fact. Um, I, I remember one of my first things I noticed when I began watching DS9 was, wow, that woman looks like Linda Carter. Um, I mean, good God. And it's interesting because my understanding from interviews with Terry is, and and my, and my recollection of season one is the whole, like, um, Jadzia as like, she well Terry jokingly calls her action Barbie, but like Jadzia Mm -hmm. as a, you know, a a, a woman who does combat sports really well and is hand-to-hand combat was something that came early in the show, but was not something that was written into the character from day one. And so I think it's interesting that they cast someone who looks like Linda Carter to like, and it wasn't necessarily to have her like be beautiful and kick people in the head. Um, is she Star Trek's Wonder Woman or is it just a physical resemblance? I think there's a lot of similarities now that we bring that up. Like that's not something I considered because like Wonder Woman, Jadzia is purposefully exiled herself from her home. Like she, mm-hmm. she's not on Paradise Island. She is in our world in order to do the most justice. And so like that certainly tracks, right? And the fact that she is a tall, beautiful woman, comfortable with violence in a way that we don't often see portrayed is certainly there. Um, I wonder how much also an influence Xena had because that was about Mm. the same time, right? So like there's this sort of mid-90s one off-brand Wonder Woman revival that was going on <laughs> uh, with Jadzia and Xena. So there's some, something could be that said there. Um, and I do wonder if like the nature of the character might have changed if they had cast another actress who did not resemble Linda Carter quite so much. That's a good question. Probably something to do with the fact that Terry is a very physical actor, like we said, and throws herself into the performance in a physical way. So giving her action sequences and fight scenes and a bat lift to hold um, while often replacing her with a stunt double that's six inches shorter than she is still <laughs> makes sense, right? It's like yeah. you you have an awareness of your movement here, hold this weapon. Oh, you're holding it really well. You can take this sort of direction and and go with it. But I do, but it is a, there's a lot of going on with Dax being someone who is centuries old and a similarity having Wonder Woman, who's also depending on your depiction, either from a culture that is century old or centuries old herself. Yeah. I really like that, that, that connection. I hadn't never considered that before, but I'm really enjoying it. So we should have had, Dax for the whole series and it mm-hmm. is truly the result of an ab- abusive employer situation that her character was killed off uh, and in a just world we would have been able to see Dax all the way through the final season well Jadzia Dax all the way through the final season and we, Esri could have just been there as a non-Dax but not, 
needless to say, in in a world in which we had Terry Farrell playing her character in the final season, what would you like to see her do? What would you what would you want from a final Dax season? I mean, number one is to get some of the Esri beats. <laughs> Because I want Jadzia to go back to her family. I want Jadzia to be part of the baseball game. I want Jadzia to be in on the uh, holodeck heist, right? Like, I want her to have those stories. Um, So number one would be that. But also, it would be really interesting to explore in that final season who Jadzia is apart from Dax. And not necessarily like literally removing the Dax symbiote because they did that like three times, but like (laughs) exploring the life that she's left behind and why she left it behind. And now that she's setting up a new life with Worf, it would be really interesting to kind of like close the book on the old life Mm. in a, in a nice way rather than like a, and see you later losers. I'm out of here kind of way that it's the vibe that, she just like left and never wanted to go back. And it would have been nice to have some closure on who she was. Maybe even learn her pre-transition surname. Like it, it seems like so much of Dax's character is unfinished and clearly was never intended to be finished. And it would have nice to have like seen that, like given her the fully rounding that Julian got, that O'Brien mm. got, that Cisco got, that Kira got and to like really have her be like, these are my origins. This is who I am now. I am a different person than that, but that does not make me lesser. And in fact, that makes me stronger. All of the characters had that story, had at least one episode where that main conflict happened and she never did. And I would have liked to have seen that. Um, yeah, I, I love all of those ideas. I love the idea of using that time to build facets of her character that we never saw. The other thing that comes to mind for me is something that is just noted in those last couple episodes of season six, which is that she and Worf want to have children. And yes. that Julian is working on the exact types of gene therapy that would be necessary to do so. I never want anybody on a TV show to get pregnant or have children. Like that's like my least favorite (laughs) storyline, but for her and for them and with the like interspecies implications and the queer implications, like that would have been really fascinating to see. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's a sci-fi show. Anything's possible. Right. Yeah. And also just knowing that so much of season seven is a war arc to find out what her role would be during those periods of time when the crew is split into those various responsibilities surrounding the war and see what kind of heroism is... What, what position of heroism she's placed in is just fascinating to me. So it's like, I want to see that sort of like domestic side of her. And I also just want to see the most badass possible side of her. It would also be really interesting along those lines to have them keep trying to have a child and failing. Like that's something mm-hmm. a lot of people who have um, difficulties in conceiving and need medical assistance 
like Julian's gene therapy, wrestle with. And to see that in a sci-fi context where it's like, we have all this magical science at our disposal and we still can't make this happen would have been a really interesting storyline. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot there. I think that, I mean, my thing is always too, that like if there had been hindsight, it would have been great to have Esri on the show as a recurring character from the start as well. And to mm-hmm. be able to move some of that stuff earlier so that they could both develop. That it's not like I would have wanted Jadzia instead of Esri. I would have wanted Esri from season one. Because that crew really needed a therapist. Yeah, it would <laughs> definitely need a therapist. I am pro counselor on yeah. every Star Trek season. Every cast needs a counselor. And it's obnoxious when they're not there because it's such a good idea and they go through so much trauma on a regular basis. Like there should be a counselor on every show. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, it would be really interesting to have a bonded trill and a non-bonded trill and to show the um, ways that the culture is different from their separate perspectives. Unlike how Ezri treats Jadzia and how Jadzia treats Ezri and have them both there and to have different ideas about who the other person is just because they're bonded or not would be really fascinating. Especially because one of the things we learned from that um, Ezri family episode, which I apparently am one of the five people who likes that episode, but that one of the things we learned is that there's a sort of class divide between the kind of people who become joined and the kind of people who don't. And that mm-hmm. like Esri is kind of a class trader and that it would be your, for that reason too, that idea of like, well, we're both the same species, but she's not like me. Right. And especially with that artificial scarcity built into the society, right? Of course, a certain class of people is the ones who are willing to put their children through this sort of thing. Um, as opposed to like having blue collar jobs or whatever. So that dynamic could be really fascinating to pull back and forth over several episodes. So having Esri as part of the cast earlier would have been really cool. You've got me thinking about things like Trill joining Trill Symbiosis Commission Affirmative Action and like diversity joinings and like all the like politics of this for all are saying that like trail society doesn't work that contradiction of a society that does on the one hand seem to be very federation and very at least surface progressive but at the same time like their internal cultural stuff is completely like hierarchical and rule bound and nobody Black changes anything yeah that like i can definitely think of earth parallels to that sort of contradiction of like and how there are definitely many countries i can think of that have a healthy democracy and universal health care but if you get into their cultural stuff it's like wow also while we're imagining future dax episodes how crazy is it that um kirzan has not shown up on brave new worlds like, come on, it's right there. Well, I actually looked this up and there is a reason for that. And that is because Audrid would have been the host at that time. Curzon would not have been joined yet. Well, why hasn't Audrid showed up then? Well, that's my thing is we know very little about Audrid, except that she was the head of the symbiosis commission. Right? She would so have been perfect. fascinating. She's the, one oh Quark- my gosh. She's the one that Quark plays with the hairbrushing and facets. Right. Yeah. See? See, that would have been great because then we would finally get a nice intro into Trill 
society. But I guess since I'm the only one interested in that, it's not going to happen. No, that's no, no you're not because yeah. that was actually a listener question. What oh, was fascinating was um, from Reese Indigo, whose podcast Alana has appeared on and whose podcast I love, um, asked, would you like to see a new slash old Dax or Esri Dax show up in any of the new Trek properties? And our question is, yes, yes, on Strange yes. New Worlds right away. Absolutely. Also, yeah. on this, I, I guess Discovery is over, but like if we had seen a Dax in the future there, it would yeah. have been great. All the um, future Dax. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's true. I also just want then, Esri to show up for compulsory therapy on Lower Decks. Considering their DS9 love on that show, it's surprising mm-hmm. that she hasn't. I think there's time. Oh, there's and time. I do hope we, we, we should keep putting the idea out into the world. And yeah, she needs to be the mentor to uh, Paul F. Tompkins' bird character, whose name I've forgotten. Oh, the, yeah, totally. <laughs> the asshole bird. Yeah, um, like, like he has yeah. to go back to her for advice. That'd be so good. But yes, listeners, check out Reese Indigo's podcast, Is It Camp? Obviously, the podcast where they determine if something is or is not camp. Oh, um, Reese, get me on that show, Reese. Come on. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll connect you guys. I, I'm sure they'd be psyched. Absolutely. Um, obviously, I, I talked about David so Lee Roth. Um, I mean, there's obviously so, so many good topics. Um, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. So I think Lower Decks could happen, potentially. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, though. Like, Terry actually seems like she was in two, like, attempts at, at spinoffs that didn't come together. I, I just, like, literally learned about these on IMDb. Like, from 2015, there was some, like, st- some series starring Chekhov that had, like, two episodes that she might have been in. With so much more Trek media right now, I think those would be some fun places. Jesse Meyerson asked this a couple questions. Hi, Jesse. But one of them was really the question of like, so Curzon dropped her because he couldn't keep it in his pants and then she successfully reapplied. Like, what what do we think and make of that? Like, I'm a Curzon fan, but that just broke me. I was like, fuck you, Curzon. I like to um, pretend it didn't happen. That's what uh, I was wondering. Like, so that's for you. Pretend it doesn't happen. It's not like a um, like this is actually a part of this character that's fucked up. Or yeah, like that's something I just pretend doesn't happen because it doesn't make sense, and it doesn't make sense that she wouldn't know that after having been bonded. It's something that I just let slide. Wait, it makes far more sense that he would reject her because she he's worried that she will get overwhelmed by the previous lives. Uh, because we see her do that. So like that tracks with me and that feels honest and real. And him actually just being hot for a teenage girl seems wrong. I, you know, as a recovering academic um, (laughs) who has, I was never, I had different kinds of incredibly dysfunctional um, mentor and mentee relationships, but I've seen these kinds where like things get screwed up because there's sexual or romantic often one-sided in either direction in those very intense mentoring relationships and to me it's like i kind i can see it as like a consistent flaw in Curzon's character that he could not often separate his professional self from his personal self in a way that would have been healthier and that that's something that Judzia seems to sometimes have challenges in negotiating as well that she seems to have inherited a bit. 
Um, to me, it's like, also, it's like, can I still love all of the things about Curzon that I think are awesome while acknowledging that he was also probably kind of a creep? And like, how does that translate to all of the situations where we encounter that in the real world? Like, to me, it actually is a meaningful thing to accept. And especially this, like, how does she accept into herself that one of the people who is part of her is somebody who is so admirable in so many ways, but was also a problem guy? Like, how do you incorporate the parts of your prior lives that you are that are traumatizing to you and like i think that that's Mm. there's a sci-fi metaphor in that too for those of us who for whom the idea of like the living many lives part of being a trill really resonates like there are definitely parts of my past selves that like i have to reconcile with the person who i was then um i I agree with you on the face of it. And I think if there had been an episode or part of an episode where that sort of scene of reconciling that had taken place, it would make a lot more sense. But because the reveal happens near the end of an episode, and then we move on to another episode with little to no acknowledgement of what happened previous episode Mm -hmm. because of the nature (laughs) of the television, it it feels weird. Like, I think that there's grounds for drama that you're talking about that is real and true and accurate. And absolutely, the kind of person that Curzon is, is someone who would totally creep on a teenager. Not going to argue that one. Yeah. Yeah. But it's something that, like, should be more important to Jadzia in general. And the fact that it's dropped out at the end of an episode and never addressed again and her feelings about it are never truly explored. And the reason why she never knew, even though she is clearly in Curzon's head a lot, or Curzon is in her head, is weird and never explained. And that's my problem with it. Um, but I do agree with you that it is a ground for, a very fertile ground for a story that they never told. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Is like, a, yeah, you're right. That like the problem is that they dropped the ball with it, or perhaps we're not permitted to go forward with it in a way that somebody might have liked to. But yeah, we're just not interested in it. And it's like yeah. I don't, I'm not interested in how a woman might feel about uh, her mentor creeping on her like that because mm-hmm. I'm a dude writer. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know who wrote that episode. Um, I, it could have been a woman. Uh, the frustration with a lot of the Jadzia Dax episodes is her perspective is not something that the writers are interested in a lot. And it's something that um, bothers me when I watch them and rewatch them. And it's just something that comes from uh, being a female character in mid nineties media. Speaking For of real? episodes Speaking that of. <laughs> feature Jadzia, Jadzia Dax without really considering her actual perspective as an individual. <laughs> Um, oh, what a nice segue. Yeah, I, you know, I try. Um, uh, Je- Jesse Meyerson's other question was basically like, what's up with that guy that she randomly falls in love with in Meridian and, um, you know, is willing to like leave Starfleet and run away with to go live on Brigadoon? And <laughs> I I have a clear sense of how I would answer that. But Jensia, do you have any insight? Uh, it's It's twofold. Number one, it's, you know, 
it's an early episode. It's they only have so many minutes. They can't do a lot of character development because there's a lot of plot they have to get through. So it feels rushed because it is rushed. The other one is if we're going to be charitable, let's be charitable. Um, Jadzia does a lot of running away. Like she runs away from Trill. She runs away from the Federation to join Deep Space Nine, the ass end of the Federation, right? Like she's Mm -hmm. wanting to like leave everything behind is something that she does frequently. So it's not entirely out of character. That's when in a Brigadoon situation, she's like, well, maybe I'll leave everything behind again. It's worked for me so far. Uh, So I don't think that was the intent. I think the intent was like legitimately, this is a romantic relationship and they just didn't have enough time and it's not the bestly constructed episode that Deep Space Nine has ever made. But you can, if you squint, see it as an element of her character. I I like that interpretation more than anything I would have come up with. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Star Trek does have a tendency to like try to prove a character's love for another character in a one-off romance episode by having them like w- be ready to pick up and leave Starfleet for the other person, and then having that not happen because you know they they screw their heads back on, um, especially female characters, but not only female characters. So yeah, so it's part of a pattern of like mm-hmm. a certain kind of mid-tier to let's pretend that never happened level track episode. And as pe- as regular listeners to this podcast have probably noticed, um, we do tend to skip over certain episodes because we're like, there's not really anything to interpret there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And another question we got was from Ben Wheeler. Why did Jadzia feel like the right life move would be to bond with an elderly symbiote? This is interesting because like, are there young symbiotes that she could have bonded with? Um, I don't think you get a choice, right? If you want to be bonded with a trill, like they assign you one. Yeah. 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 So it's not like there was a bunch of trill out there, but I guess the larger question is why did Jadzia want to be bonded so bad? And I think, like, we've talked about that a little bit. There's an implication that who she was pre-bonding. I know a couple of times I've said pre-transition, meaning pre-bonding. But um, <laughs> but there is a transition in the bonding, and it is a giant trans metaphor. So, of course, uh, I feel like this is a pers- an aside, but I feel like at this day and age, if they have more Trill episodes, all the Trill bonded or not should be played by trans people. And just as a thing and like have trans people there with the spots on lot. I feel like that's important. And I am not explain going to explain why I think it's either obvious or not, but that's not for me to say. Anyway, moving back to the actual question. Yeah. We don't get to know anything about Jadzia's past and who she was beyond like the barest of implications. So it's hard to say why she wanted to be joined so bad. The implication being, I think, that her life was not something that she enjoyed at the very least, Mm. like either from her home life or her situation. And like she needed to have a larger connection to something else. And being bonded was something that could give her that. Yeah. And I think it I don't know if she joined Starfleet 
after being bonded or before, but it was definitely before being bonded is where her love of science started. And that's what allowed her to be bonded the second time is because she had a life path that was hers as opposed to just someone who didn't have anything going for them and wanted to be bonded. It could be that like Jadzia as a person, whether that's Jadzia Dax or Jadzia surname not specified, has a a desire to be a part of something bigger. And that's why she's part of Starfleet. That's why she got bonded. Like she needs to be part of a, a larger group. And we see that as her being dead Zia Dax and always wanting to be a very pro-social person. And which I don't think is a bad thing. So that's my theory, I guess, because we don't have any hard facts. Hmm. I think sort of looking at the timeline of the of Deep Space Nine, it is implied that she at the very least was at the Academy before she was. That tracks. Yeah. Just considering the timeline of Deep Space Nine, (laughs) that she would have had to at least have started the Academy. And especially since her initiate process was interrupted and was restarted, that it's likely that at the very least, by the time she was joined, she was toward the end of her Academy experience or was already a Starfleet officer. Or was already a Starfleet officer. Okay. Hmm. Hmm. I do like that. I like that she was already a member of Starfleet and an officer at that. Um, and then, And that is something that like, pushed her application over the edge and been like, yeah, she's ready for a symbiont. Uh, Look at her. She's got a promising career started in Starfleet. How many trills do we have in Starfleet? None. Let's give that (laughs) experience of being an officer in Starfleet. Or are there a lot of trill in Starfleet? It does seem like there are some. You know, yeah. there's a lot of ships like just because the ones that we've seen haven't had Trill on them doesn't mean there aren't other ships that have a bunch. And we see them on lower decks, but I, yeah. I and I think one of them is I think that one is joined maybe even. Um, yeah, so they're around and it's sort of established setting aside the next generation episode that introduces the species that is totally inconsistent with all subsequent Trill lore. Um yes. <laughs> That um, the hallmark of all trill lore is the inconsistency. Yeah, but like that one's extra inconsistent. So we're, we're so like it's not that we're pretending that it didn't happen, but we're pretending a lot of next generation didn't happen on this podcast. But that um, it does seem from like new track from Discovery in particular, which gives us the most additional trill information that like the trill have been part of the Federation for quite a while. That it's probably like there's probably not like tons and tons of trill in, in Starfleet, but Judzia Dax is presumably not the only one. And of course, Esri's in Starfleet when mm-hmm. that happens. So, like, yeah, it looks like there's a few of them rolling around. It's weird that they're not in the background more, since as a makeup job, you would just have to airbrush some spots on. Right, exactly. Um, Easier like than making a bullion. Right. So those are the listener questions that we brought in. I actually have one last thing I would like to hit if we can, but it, it it's okay if folks don't want to. I just, I'm really struck by 
the statement that we keep hearing from the Trill's leadership, which is that like nothing is more important than to protect the life of the symbiont. Mm-hmm. And it feels like, I mean, that gets played an, a, 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 as a way to um, downplay the importance of Jadzia as an individual a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. But I also wonder if, there's ways I can see that mimicking the way certain cultures, you know, prioritize what is the community want over the self. Right. Uh, well, also in that certain cultures are more highly valued than others, right? And certain pe- certain people of certain racial backgrounds are valued more highly than others by society. And mm-hmm. so to have that then be, these are the most important members of our society, these slugs. <laughs> kind of puts a fine point on on the ridiculousness of that in a nice little sci-fi way. So yeah, somebody who has more time than me needs to write the like um a stitch in time of pre-joining Jadzia that reconciles trill culture and makes it in some way coherent because clearly we need all of those things. <laughs> it's funny that you have Star Trek cultures like the Klingons which is also contradictory, but feels whole. And then you have the trill, which is contradictory and never quite gels. And I, I, I wonder why that is beyond like the strong visual. And maybe that's all it takes is there's not a strong visual for trill in the same way that there is for Klingons or Vulcans or Cardassians. I think it's also... Um, like Klingons, we see a lot, a lot of Klingons come in and out of the show. We see a lot of Ferengi come in and out of the show. We see a lot of Cardassians, a lot of Bajorans with Trill, although we do briefly meet other Trill. There's nobody else who really gets fleshed out as like a plausible human being, except mm-hmm. maybe for Lenaricon. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. we'll, you get a lot of like Trill with two or three scenes but you don't get a lot of Trill who seem like full-fledged people other than Jadzia. And it's Mm -hmm. really hard to world build when you've only got one character. Right. But, you know, they did a great job with Quark. But there's other Ferengi. There's a ton of Ferengi. That's true. I mean, you can't have Quark without Rom and like the the push and pull between those two characters alone. Right. Says a lot about Ferengi society. And Plus, so you high. have Nog and the Nagus and Brunt yeah, and yeah. Ishka, and like there's tons of them. There's tons of them. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Yeah, I do wish there was more Trill, just in general. I feel like it's a very interesting um, concept, right? And it would be really interesting to see, see more actors take on the idea of having these past lives in a different way than what uh, Terry Farrell has done because I do believe that Jedzia is an atypical trill in that way. And so it'd be nice to see some typical trills. The other thing that we pointed toward is, so it is established in equilibrium that the symbiont, the symbionts breed and they like have to like be un, they have to be unjoined at the time. And like, they have to be in these like very carefully chemically controlled pools to do so but if they're breeding there must be new symbionts and i'm curious what is it like to be in your first joining as a symbiont that is interesting is it just yeah because it's definitely there's an element of gestalt no matter what right because who you are then turns into who you are plus this other person Mm -hmm. and but if that other person is a slug who hasn't really experienced anything beyond 
the nutrient pool, how does that change how you perceive the world then? Yeah. How much of Dax, the symbiote, is the first host? That's a really interesting, yeah. that's a really interesting thing. Yeah. I hadn't even considered that. And the first host is one of the ones that we know the least about. Mm-hmm. Well, Jitsia, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Is there anything oh, you want us to make sure we talk about before we wrap? Or Yeah, well, Hawkgirl 1 through 6 finished um, not too long ago. So you, if you can find issues 1 and 2, which I'm told are very hard to find right now, you can pick up the whole story. Or you can wait until June of 2024, which is when the Collected Trade Edition comes out. Um, yes, you were mentioning that all of your comics are coming in out in book form in June because you're queer. <laughs> That's just what they do. <laughs> uh, they either come out in June or late May. This seems to be what happens now. Um, and despite Hawkgirl having a straight lead, the queer supporting cast and my general queerness is enough to overwhelm that and make it a June book, uh, which is <laughs> amusing to me. I think Kendra Saunders would be very happy to know she's been made honorarily queer by the publication industry i think she'd be very confused by that i think that's it's like what does that say about me then if i'm honorarily queer by the publication industry do i need to re-examine some stuff about myself <laughs> i think she would see too much into it and if you liked what i did with kendra saunders and wanted to see more buying the trade is the best way to support that bring more hawk girl into the world yes Hawk Girl also has Galaxy from Galaxy the Prettiest Star as a supporting cast member. It was a lot of fun to write her again. So if you enjoyed Galaxy the Prettiest Star, you will probably enjoy Hawk Girl. I just love that there is a trans woman superhero, trans lesbian woman superhero who is just in the DC universe, you know, as like a supporting character and has had her own book. And like, that's wonderful. Yeah, she's great, right? Um, <laughs> We're fans here. We're fans. I, I do love that the first trans character from either Marvel or DC to have her name in the title of a book and not be just an ensemble person is is a bona fide queer person. Like, I, I love that. Um, mm -hmm. Not that there's anything against um, my, my straight doll friends because, like, you have your own path to walk and that's cool. Um, but it's nice to to have that honor be on a queer trans woman. And I love that I get to showcase her queerness and I don't have to like nudge, uh, wink, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, or hide behind an inference. And like we can be open about her girlfriend and her attraction to women and her trans history. And I, I think that's great. And uh, yeah. I love that I've been allowed to do that. And I love the way that the artists I've worked with have illustrated that and shown it. And it's uh, made me very happy. In the, in, <laughs> which is an unusual feeling in corporate owned comics to be like, I really like how this was handled. I feel like this was handled the way I wanted it to be. And that's nice. And I've heard so oh. many horror stories of people who try to do similar things and it didn't quite come out. So it's really nice to be able to look at these panels and be like, yes, that's what I, I wanted to see. Well, it's such a good, you've come a long way, baby moment from where we're talking about with Dax in the, uh, yes. in the show. So 
with her. I could only do it through metaphor, but like also still get a gay makeout. So that mm-hmm. was nice. Mm-hmm. Um, that that episode handles it is so much better than any other homosexual metaphor episode that Star Trek has done, and they've done a high handful. And I think mm-hmm. it's entirely because we get to see two people of the same gender have passion for each other. And normally those homosexual metaphor episodes are so bloodless and so mm-hmm. sterile and that we get to see two queer women kiss and have consequences to that quiz- kiss because of the society they live in gives it a power and a, a lasting power and a, that other episodes which have aged like milk don't have. <laughs> it is a passionate kiss that we did. We did not get cheated. They are intense. Kiss. They yes. are intense in that. Like it feels like everyone involved knew that this wouldn't work unless they sold it. Right. Like everything has to be genuine in order for the, the episode, which again is the silliest of Billy's. Like it's not <laughs> like concept wise. It's not one of their better ideas, but it, it, it works because everyone is so real and so intense with their emotions from, from Dax and Khan themselves to even the supporting cast members like Lenore's brother. Like mm-hmm. everybody feels real and lived in, in their emotions. And that shows um, the screen. That and Avery that something, Brooks directed. Yeah, yeah, like, of course. Of course, all the acting is going to be good on an Avery Brooks episode. I think that one of the hallmarks of good Trek is that so many of the best episodes have on paper the absolute most ridiculous premises. And you have to just sit there with somebody who's never seen it and said, no, no, but wait, trust me, it's good <laughs> anyway. Yes. <laughs> no, no, they all play baseball. No, really, it's a good one. <laughs> So tell our listeners where they can follow you online. I mean, don't. <laughs> Fair enough. No, no, it's fine. Um, I just feel really weird about social media right now. So like when people say, what's your social media? I'm like, I don't know if I want to tell you. Um, but I'm on Instagram at Planet X. I'm on Twitter at Planet X. Um, if you search uh, Blue Sky, Blue Ski, Blue Ski, whatever that, mm-hmm. however you pronounce that in real life. Um for Jedzia Axelrod, uh, I'll be there. And it's like planetx.bluska.social. Um, yeah, so if you look for a Planet X handle on most social medias, you will find me. You can find me at jedziaaxelrod.com. Um, and I have a newsletter there that I haven't really updated this year because I've been busy writing comic books. Good for you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I've been busy writing Hot Girl, and then a, a as of yet unannounced book that I'm very excited about that you will probably see in like two years because that's how long these things take. Yeah, but I've been busy, so I haven't been doing the newsletter. But on the off chance that I do finally do a newsletter, please subscribe, um, <laughs> and then you'll know about things that are happening theoretically. Uh, but yeah, I'm pretty easy to find, so find me there as for me i am on blue sky at l-e-v-i-n and i'm still on the other terrible sad place but trying to be there less e-l-a-n-a underscore brooklyn and i am also on i call it blue ski at rasher r-a-s-h-e-r dot 
blueski.social. I have left the bad place. My account is Good still there. You. I don't use it. Um, and like Jadzia, I have a newsletter that I swear I'm resuscitating any day now. I will announce that if it comes back to life. And I think it will because I've got something going on. Um, I always do a New Year's post. So like you're guaranteed mm-hmm. at least one is going to happen soon. Great. Um, so so Jadzia, let us both resolve in the new year. Those newsletters are coming back. Yes, absolutely. That's yes. Yes. People have asked me my New Year's resolutions and I haven't known, but now, now I know the newsletter is coming back. <laughs> and with that, uh, does Odo have any parting remarks for us, Sarah? As Odo says, sometimes it was just a bad episode and it never happened. <laughs> <laughs> See you next time, everyone. Please spread the word about the podcast.